Judges 6 verse 1, this is, the, this is basically the starting verse of almost every chapter in the book of Judges. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Doing evil costs you. took years away from things that they could have done and probably hoped to have done. It'll cost you, but I'm so thankful today that even though sin does cost us, we serve a God who can restore even the years, the Bible says, that the enemy has taken from us. Has anybody in the room experienced that? God restore life, restore years, restore months. And you're thinking, man, I thought I had missed everything. And I, I, I did waste time. But God knows how to redeem time. And uh, I'm not saying that as an excuse for you to waste time. I'm just telling you today that if you're in the room and you feel like, man, I wasted so much time. Could God... Yes, he can. I spent so many years doing, could God? Yes, he can. And I, I promise you this, even if it's just a few short years that you have serving the Lord, those few short years will be better than every other day you spend without him. The Bible says that better is one day in his presence than a thousand elsewhere. So you could waste seven years, but one day in his presence will make up and redeem all of those years. Come on, somebody in the room today that you lost. So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of, the Mid of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. I don't want to eat no donkey anyway. You can have them donkeys. <laughs> they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished, had so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Isn't it awesome that when we say stupid things, God just ignores us and continue saying what he wanted to say the whole time. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word today. We believe that over these next few moments we have together, you are going to speak clearly to us, challenge us, change us forever. We thank you for that. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said amen. amen. Well, this story begins with the description of what is happening to the people of God because of what Midian is doing. And in the middle of this story, the Bible says that all of a sudden a prophet is sent to the people and this prophet begins to declare this. He says that the Lord wants to remind you that I am the God who brought you out. I am the God who rescued you. I am the God who drove out your oppressors. I am the God who gave you this land. And you have chosen other gods. And because you have chosen other gods, you are now suffering under their oppression. I love this because the prophet comes to remind them that you need to understand why you're crying out for help. You are crying out for help because every other God besides me oppresses you. This is what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So the same message that the prophet is preaching to Israel, Paul is preaching to us. There is a tendency in our lives to give ourselves to lesser things than God. There is this tendency that we have to go back into bondage. One of the reasons we do that is because bondage is familiar. Bondage is familiar. Freedom is unfamiliar. And when you don't understand freedom, it can seem like bondage is better because at least when I was in bondage, there were some things I knew about bondage that I don't understand about freedom. It's why the people of God, when they were set free from Egypt, got into this wilderness, and even though God was providing for them supernaturally, they were still so angry with Moses because they're like, at least we knew what time dinner was going to be served. At least in Egypt, we had a schedule. At least in Egypt, we weren't out here relying on miracles. At least in Egypt, we knew where we were going to sleep at night. Even if we hated our bed and we hated the food and we hated Egypt, at least we had some sort of comfort in Egypt. And I, I just came to remind somebody today that if you are going to follow God, you are going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because freedom is uncomfortable. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about this vision they have and they're so uncomfortable. They're, it's giving them feelings of, 
of insecurity that they hadn't experienced in a long time. And it's a person who is in ministry, but God has put this vision in their heart to begin this nonprofit and help reach people who are who are victims of mass shootings and being a victim themselves and having eight members of their family die in a mass shooting. They've just in in their early late 20s, early 30s, all of a sudden it's been a shift of focus. And now getting into a world they're unfamiliar with, the nonprofit world, there, there's a lot of insecurity that's coming, a lot of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of fear that is there because they don't have the same comfort level in this that they had in the church. You know, growing up in the church and understanding the church and understanding ministry, but now they're walking into something brand new and there's no, they have no history in this, they, they have, they have no, no customs in this, they have no relationships in this, and all of this is brand new. And that can be scary because comfort is so comforting. It's like trying a new food and you're like, I don't know if I want to go to that restaurant. I'd rather go to this one. And even if it's bad, you at least know it's consistently (laughs) bad. (laughs) Oh, man. That's why we can travel all over the place. And if you're from the South, no matter where you go, you're looking for a Cracker Barrel. It's just like <laughs> the mashed potatoes at Cracker Barrel taste the same in Tennessee as they do in Pennsylvania. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't know about that new place you're trying to take me to. I know about the, this macaroni and cheese. So we're so we're so and, and that's the thing. So I said to him, I said, that's the thing about a vision. A vision isn't usually rooted in the past. A vision that God gives you is usually a frustration with the past. It's, it's where he's saying, I, I don't like how things have been going. I don't like how things have been turning out. I don't like the results that I've been getting. And I want you to do something new. That's hard, isn't it? Freedom is a little intimidating. But I, 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 just, I just challenge you today. Listen, don't go back. There's nothing in your past that is worth going back to. There is nothing in your yesterday that is better than the future that God has for you. And I know it's a little uncomfortable right now, but pretty soon the place of faith will become your comfort zone. If you'll live in it long enough, faith will become your comfort zone. Faith will be like, oh man, take a risk. That's, that's what I was born to do. Yeah, I promise you it will, it will begin to shift. And we see here that Gideon is in this place where everyone else in Israel is in. They're in bondage. They're suffering. They're hiding in caves. And the Bible says that when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, that he is threshing wheat in a wine press. And a wine press is different than the place you would want to thresh wheat. You would want to thresh wheat on a hilltop. Because involved in the process of threshing wheat is not just the threshing of the wheat separating the grain from the chaff. There's also this process called winnowing. And the Bible doesn't say anything about winnowing. It's an interesting, in this story it doesn't mention winnowing because there's no place for him to winnow. He cannot, he can, he can get the grain from the chaff, but he's having to work harder than he would have to work if he was 
if he was on an elevated place where he could throw the grain and the chaff up in the air. And the Bible teaches that when they would do this through this process called winnowing, the wind would blow away the chaff. So he's working harder than he has to work. He has a harvest, but he can't enjoy it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be costing me this much. It shouldn't be making me this tired. It shouldn't be this difficult. And that's because sometimes God comes to point out to you, you are doing this and you are doing all the things that you need to do to get the harvest. But the problem is, is there's no spirit activity in your life. And so there's no wind blowing away the chaff. And so it's harder. It costs you more. It's more difficult. I just came to tell somebody that John 6, 63, Jesus said that the spirit gives life and the Bible teaches that the spirit of God is like the wind that it blows wherever it wants to blow and I'm telling you today that if you will open up your life and just say Holy Spirit come on in and have your way there are things that the spirit does for you that you don't have to do for yourself and some of the difficulty and some of the some of the drudgery and some of the 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 painful just like just like monotony of relationship with God Man, it does not have to be that way. It can be full of life. It can be full of the Spirit because whatever the Spirit gets involved in, it brings life. The Bible said that when He created man, oh, He was a man, but He wasn't a living, breathing soul until the Bible says He blew His Spirit into Him and He came alive. I wonder if there's anybody in the room today who just needs a little bit of life. Well, the Spirit is that life. So I need that. I need to invite the spirit into my life or I'll have a harvest, but I can't enjoy it. And I love this because the angel of the Lord comes and challenges them and reminds them, hey, listen, this bondage that you are in. I didn't come to condemn you for this bondage. I came to remind you that the only reason you are in this bondage is because you are serving lesser gods than me. Every other God besides me oppresses you. And so the prophet speaks that word and then the angel of the Lord sits down and begins to talk to Gideon. And when the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon, the greeting is super odd. The greeting is like, hey there, mighty man of valor. To me, if I'm reading it, it feels like if I don't know the whole story and if I don't know the character of God, it feels a little sarcastic. You know what I mean? Considering where Gideon is, he's hiding out. He's doing the threshing of wheat in the wrong place because he's so afraid of Midian that they'll come and they'll steal this harvest. And it seems almost sarcastic that the angel of the Lord would come in and be like, hey, tough guy. <laughs> But it's not. It's, it's because when you, when you read the whole story and you look at the whole tone of Scripture, this is how God speaks to people. This is what God does in people when he greets Peter for the first time. He's like, man, it's been said about you that you are a reed, that you are easily broken. But I call you Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. You know, so he begins to speak to him, not about his current condition, but about who he will make him into. I, I, I'm so thankful for a God who, even though I don't deserve it, but he comes to me, he doesn't condemn me and call me what I am. 
he speaks to me about who I can become. No wonder those fishermen dropped everything to follow Jesus. Because if you can, it's, it's easy for people to point out what I am. It's easy. It takes no effort for you to see who I am. Man, it takes some real insight and it takes some faith and it takes some power to be able to speak to who I could be in Christ Jesus. And so God comes to Gideon. He says, hey, mighty man of war. I'm not talking to you about who you are or where you've been or what you've done. I'm not interested in that. What I want to talk to you about is who you will become when my spirit gets into you, when my hand touches your life, when I choose you and when I when I call you. I want to talk to you about who I'm going to make you into being. I love it because it means that God doesn't wait for us to get ourselves together before he brings salvation. God doesn't love us after we make ourselves lovable. <laughs> Here, hiding in a hole, full of fear. And, and we'll even discover as we read through this story and Gideon's story, he wrestles with fear and anxiety and a, a lack of faith. He's always hedging his bets with God. He's always got a, got a fleece that he's throwing out. Well, God, show, if you're really then... And God is gracefully and patiently working with him because he doesn't, he doesn't meet us always on the mountaintop of our lives. Most of us, and I would say all of us, if we're honest, he met us in the deepest, darkest pit in the cave of our life when he didn't have to, but he did. And I love it because it means he's, he's not calling Gideon because Gideon is courageous. But Gideon is courageous as the result of God's call. God is not describing him as he is. God is describing who he will become. God doesn't call the brave, I heard someone say. He makes brave the called. Romans 8 and 30 says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I love Ephesians 1, 4. It's probably, probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But Ephesians 1, 4 talks to us about how God chose us in him before the creation of the world. I want to talk to you about God's plan for your life for a moment and then we'll transition and we'll close. But... I need you to understand that God's plan for you and for me is as old as he is. And he has no beginning and he has no end. Whatever God does comes from eternity. Remember Jeremiah, he said, you were on my mind before you were ever in your mother's womb. There is never a time in the existence of God that he didn't know everything. As long as he has known himself, he has known me. So when it comes to my life, God isn't just making it up. Romans eleven twenty nine says something very interesting. It says, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. 
One translation says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Why is that? Because God does not get new information on you. Every now and then somebody will come and they'll, they'll be upset because they'll see somebody serving or they'll see somebody on the stage or they'll see somebody working somewhere, helping, and they'll want to make sure we're informed <laughs> on who they really are, what they did. <laughs> and sometimes that can be new information. Oh, wow, I did not know that. That's interesting. It's funny, though, how we think that we can do the same thing to God. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> God, I know, I know you, you, you have a call on their life and I know you had a plan for them. But, but did you know? As if there's going to be a point in your life where you do something and God's going to be like, <gasps> What? <laughs> I never should have called them. I never should have gifted them. What's amazing about the gifts of God and the calling of God is that he has, he has all the information about you and me. And he still does it. What's amazing, if you know the end of this story, very often we don't talk about the end of this story, but Gideon doesn't end up good. And even though Gideon doesn't end up great, God still calls him. Because even though I'm not perfect, and even though I'm not always faithful, and even though I'm not always who I should be, God still sees that there is use for my life, that there is value in my days. Even if all of my days aren't perfect, he says, I'm going to take that 10-year period where you trust me, and I'm going to get the most out of you. I just, I just, I don't know about you, but there are just times when I look at God and I'm just like, I have no idea why you're using me. Because if you knew, and then I'm like, but you do know. <laughs> but, but, but God, I, I, I'm, I'm very, like there's a high probability that in the future, I'm going to have some days where I don't trust you. Like I'm in a good I'm in a roll right now. I'm 43. Things are going well. Things haven't fallen off. God, there might be a point in my life where things fall off. God's like, I know all of that. Like I, when, you're, when you're 80, I know. When, when you're 55, I know. When, when you're 30, I know. And I, I know all of it. And I'd still call you. The gift that I gave you, the calling that's on your life, it's irrevocable. Can somebody in the room today just put your hands together and say, God, I thank you. I thank you that you called me in spite of me. <laughs> this, this is what I'm finding out, man. This is... This is <laughs> This is what I'm finding out. If God wants you, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> nothing. You're like, well, I can rebel. <laughs> well, you'll just find yourself at the bottom of that barrel crying out to God. You'll just be at the belly, in the belly of a fish like Jonah. I'm in the belly of hell right now. The only option I got is to cry out to God. Go ahead, try that. 
See how that works out for you. Even though I make, the psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, he will find me there. If God sets his sights on me, there is nothing I can do to escape a God who is determined that he wants to use me. So my confidence doesn't come from my gifting, my ability, my righteousness. My confidence comes from the fact that my calling has been around as long as he's been around. You can try to hide. You can hide in a hole from the Midianites, but you cannot hide from God. However, he has to draw you. However, he has to keep you. However, he has to discipline you. He will do it. You can be Samson and have gone in complete rebellion. And the thing that made you strong, you lose it. You lose all your influence. You lose your eyes. You lose your hair that gave you your power. You lose everything that made you who you thought you were supposed to be. And God can meet you right at the end of your life and use you at the end of your life with just a little bit of stubble and no eyeballs. He doesn't need much. And he took Samson at the end of his life and at, on his, in his last feat of strength, he killed more Philistines than he had ever killed in his entire life with both of his eyes and all of his hair. So you're like, I, I don't know, man, maybe it's too late. <laughs> you, you, you're missing your eyes and. No, it's never. It's never too late. Oh, man, Rob, I think it's impossible. How impossible? Like what the word means. Impossible. I've got good news for that. I've, I've met people who are like, I just don't know. I just don't know if my family member can be saved. I don't know. They just maybe they're just too far. Maybe it's just too late. Maybe, maybe they're too old. Maybe they're too young. Maybe, they just, maybe they'll just never get it. Jesus actually addressed this in the Gospels in Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 26. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier... <laughs> It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, you would say that's not happening. It's just not happening. Than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Oh, my God. Ephesians 1 and 11 says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God's working it out. This is why I know my salvation is secure. I know my salvation is secure because of where I was when he called me. And I had nothing to offer then. And I have nothing to offer now. There's a word you see through the Bible. It's this word predestined. And one of the definitions of the word predestined means that they're to set a limit in advance. 
or to set boundaries. So when Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that God has written a book about your life. And he is working to make sure that everything that he has planned for you, that it, it happens in your life. That's why the Bible says that he who began a good work in you. Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to bring it to its completion. I'm confident in my salvation because I didn't start it. And if I didn't start it, it's not on me to finish it. Can somebody say amen? And so there's, there's actually a limit to my life. There are boundaries to my life. That's good news. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith the worlds were framed by the word of God. And so if God sets boundaries or limitations, he says to the water, stop here. He says to the land, that's enough. He says to the expanse, he says, that's enough. He says to that star right there. He says to the sun, you stay there. And everything in creation is satisfied with the limitations that God has put on its life. Except for man. Well, I, I, well, I think, and, and I know, man, we, <laughs> we think too much. <laughs> we think we know too often. We need to do a better job of submitting our lives to the plan and to the purpose of God that is outlined for us in his word. And, and that's important to me because not only does it mean my life has boundaries, it means that the enemies that would want to destroy my life also have boundaries. In other words, God says to the devil, that's far enough. Come on, somebody. And so when I consider all that I have been through and I really, I really assess my life and where I am right now, I have to be honest with you, I should not be here. And if you were honest with yourself, if, if your life was the result of every decision you made, you probably wouldn't be here either. But you serve a God who not only has set boundaries and limitations and an expectation for your life, but he has set those same boundaries and limitations for the enemy. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord, the Bible says, will raise up a standard against him. That's why the Bible says that, that they are gonna, weapons are going to form against you, but they will not be able to prosper. And every tongue that rises up against you to condemn you, God's going to turn around and condemn it because when it comes to your life there is a time where God steps in and he says that's enough devil come on anybody in the room today thankful that God sets a limitation not only on me but on my enemies so he looks at he looks at the people of Israel and says seven years that's long enough in a generation before it was 18 years that's long enough now look at that. Their ability to endure lasted 18 years. This group of people had the ability to last seven years. That's why you cannot compare your life to other people. Because what God has given you is not always what he has given them. Remember in the New Testament, even when he's giving out those gifts, he gave to one five, he gave to one two, and he gave to one 
one. Based on their what? Ability. Who determines ability? God. So ability is not something where it's like, I didn't go to enough school. Gideon didn't go to school to lead an army. Ability is not connected to, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't listen to enough podcasts. I didn't take enough notes in youth group. I should have listened to Abraham when I was in Sunday school class and kids ministry. I should have went to more church services and, and you, should, you should do all that. You should read, you should study more. But none of that is the ability that we're talking about today. We are talking about an ability that is given to you. Like Romans 11 says, without repentance, it's God's gift to you. You wake up every day and you have it. It's in you. It's a part of your nature. It's been woven into your DNA. It's who you are. That's why we can praise God now. A lot of people, man, I'd say most people in this room came to church today with unanswered prayers. We're not in this room today praising God because every single prayer has been answered. We are in this room today because we know what he does for those he predestined. It says that those he predestined, what? He's also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And if it's not glory, then God is not done. So I'm praising today because I know my life has been framed by his word. And the end of my journey is glory. The end of your journey is glory. If you have been called, then you have been justified. And if you have been justified, then you will be glorified. That's why the Bible says, I I don't even dare to compare these present afflictions to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. He's like, so while I'm suffering, while I'm in prison, I can, I can minister. Why? That's why Paul was able to in prison say, man, how, how good is God? How, how full of joy am I in the middle of that? Why? Because he knew the end was glory. And he's like, if I'm here and I'm not in glory, then that means God is not finished with me yet because he said the end for me is glory. And so I praise him in the prison. I praise him when the doctor's report is bad. I praise him when the marriage isn't good. I praise him when the kids are in rebellion. I praise him when the bank account is empty. I praise him when the car breaks down. I praise him because I know this is not the end of my story. God has something else to say about my life. So this is what this is Gideon's response to all of that. Gideon says, well, Uh, Verse 13. Well, if the Lord is with us, Gideon, you're talking to an angel. Sorry, that just came out of me. Like, I don't understand. I've never, anybody in the room, like, just like had an actual literal physical convo with an angel. If you have a conversation with an angel and then you ask the angel, where is God? When God's representative is like standing right in front of you. I will hurt you. (laughs) 
believe me, I will come for you. This drives me up a wall. These Old Testament jerks who are like, where is God? And angels are appearing and they got clouds of fire and God's delivering millions. And I'm sitting here, I've never talked to an angel. I've never seen a cloud on fire. And you're wondering where the Lord is? I believe a dead guy got up 2,000 years ago and I've never seen him. <laughs> That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You think, you think they had power in the book of Acts. Look at what we're standing in right now. He said, where is God? Right in front of you, dummy. Like, what are we doing, man? I'm just... He says, as the Lord is with us, why did he leave us again? <laughs> Bro, I... Oh, Gideon. He didn't leave you, bro. Y'all left him. Well, look at the patience of God. He just completely ignores him. He's not insulted. He's not offended. He's just like, isn't it? I love this because God knows we're ignorant. God knows we're just, we're just, we're sheep. <laughs> sheep are about the dumbest animal on planet earth. You know, sheep don't even have a reverse. They don't. They get stuck in something and they don't know how to back out. How great of a descriptor is this about you and me? We just walk into something, we can't get out of it. What do we do? We just dig in even deeper. If I've gone this far, I'm going all in. <laughs> he's so gracious. And he's like, where are your wonderful deeds? Again, you are talking to the angel of the Lord. Closest I've ever come is like being in a Catholic church and a picture of one in a wall, you know, like, or Mary up on the thing, you know. That's the closest. <laughs> Bro, you have an actual angel. And so watch what, watch what the angel, how the angel replies. I love this, verse 14. So the Lord turned to him after his... Two questions of like, where are you at? Right here. <laughs> and he says to him, go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? We got to get this. We've got to understand. We are God's work. Ephesians 2 and 10 says we are God's handiwork. It's another way of God saying to us, you are my work. You keep asking me where I am. And I keep wondering, where are you? You're like, God, come and visit our city. And God's like, okay, where are you? God, come and bring revival. And God's like, Okay, I'm sending you. 
It's wild how we want some sort of something. I don't know what we want. We want, I don't know if, like, if, if revival, maybe revival, we think revival is like a mist that just falls on the city. <laughs> what are we thinking? I don't know what we think. God, send revival. Well, it's like, like, is there an angel named revival? Like, is there a... God's response is, you. I heard a preacher say years ago, he said, I'm not waiting on revival. He said, I am a revival. I love that. Because that, that really catches on to what the Bible is trying to teach us. That's why Jesus, when he said, I have to go. He's like, I have to go because this gospel needs to get to the whole world. And, and I'm limited by this physical body that I'm in. And so I need to get my spirit into all of your bodies so that you can go to the world and do greater. Remember, Jesus says greater works than these will you do. We're a part of that greater work. You're like, well, I don't see all the miracles and I don't see all. You've missed the point. The, the, the greatest work that God does is, is, is not healing somebody of a disease. The greatest work God does is transforming a heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in the greater works. You're in it. Ah, oh, but you're looking for the wrong things sometimes. I heard Tim Keller, he said this years ago, he said, we're always saying to the Lord, why don't you remove this problem? Instead of saying, Lord, please make me the person who can handle this problem. <laughs> wouldn't, that, wouldn't that fit more in line with what you've experienced as you follow God? More than God coming in and like a mist falling out of the sky, fixing your problems. God matures you to the point where you can handle the problem. It's, it's wild, isn't it? Anytime there's a problem in Israel, God raises up a person. That's why you are so valuable because that means your life is a response to a problem in the earth. And you are the only one sent here on mission to fix that particular problem problem in the only way you can through your gift your lifetime in your frame in your book so God says I form you with my hands and then I use your hands you are my work. And then he, tur and, and then, and then he turns to, to Gideon. Gideon. Gideon, who's pretty excited, he says, okay, I'm going to go get an offering. And he comes back with his offering. He gives this offering and the fire comes. And, and then the Bible goes, and Gideon said, surely I have seen the angel of the Lord. <laughs> Again, Gideon. <laughs> oh, man. So after this, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord gives a command to Gideon. He says, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go to your dad's house. And I want you to tear down 
Baal. I want you to tear down the altars that have been constructed to Baal. Now, Baal was the name of their god, but Baal had many different idols. So Baal worship was, uh, they had an idol for everything. They had an idol for fertility. They had an idol for rain, even. They had so many idols. And what's interesting about when the people of God would serve Baal, it wasn't that they rejected God. It's just that they had taken on idols as a supplement to God or as an addition to God or like an add-on to God. You know, like a, like a sandwich and you're like, can you put some mayo on that? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like it wasn't like they didn't want God. It was just that they, they, they wanted God, but they, they had started to develop levels of distrust in God. And so because of that, they started trusting other idols to fill the void where they thought they needed something from God. So it was like if they were struggling with uh, having a child, then they would take on the idol of Baal that would, uh, the idol of fertility, or if they were struggling with rain for their crops, they would take on the idol of Baal that dealt with, with rain. And I think sometimes we look through the Bible and we're like, man, those weird idol worshipers, that's just weird, isn't it? But, oh man, uh, I think we do the same thing when we don't trust God and we count on other things as a backup. And here's how you identify an idol. An idol is a place of disobedience or anxiety. This is why relationships can become an idol. The New Testament gives plenty of instruction for believers on relationships. It teaches us that when it comes to relationships, that we should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But Christians date unbelievers all the time. Why? Because they don't trust God... So they, they jump into and start to worship the idol that their culture worships, which is relationship. It's, this, is why, this, is why, this is why our favorite TV shows are like The Bachelor. I mean... I mean, you really wanna, you really wanna marry Billy who just kissed 40 other girls to get to you? <laughs> but it just shows us how much we distrust God in the area of relationship. I'm not gonna do what I know to do and trust God to bring me someone who's an equal yoke with me. And there are some people in this room who you're in the middle of a relationship right now and you don't even really want to, you don't even really want to be sleeping with the person because you have, a, you have a conviction that tells you that that sex is for marriage and marriage only, marriage between a man and a woman. And you, you don't want to, you don't really want to do it, but the only reason you're doing it is because you just feel like if you don't do it, then you'll lose the relationship. Anything that you have to compromise your values to keep, you don't want 
you don't want. It's Baal. And so God says to Gideon, he says, Gideon, before you will ever be able to conquer the enemies that are on the outside of you, you have to deal with the idols that are within you. That's why people don't give. They don't give because it's not because they don't have enough or they have too much. It's it's not that. We don't give because we don't trust God. There's an anxiety connected to it. So we disobey because we don't trust him. And, And you can be broke and you can be wealthy and not give. As a matter of fact, As a matter of fact, some of the the stingiest people on the planet are not broke people. They're wealthy people who have built a life that they think they built, that they think they must sustain, and they don't trust God. So it's become an idol. The Bible teaches us that how we begin to tear down idols is idols are basically images when you read through scripture. You begin to cast down imaginations. Anything that exalts itself, the Bible says, above the knowledge of God. Idols can be some things that you see internally that aren't even real. Fears that have not even manifest. Things that you think will happen but have never happened. And you can be controlled by them. Have you ever felt like victory and then all of a sudden the enemy throws an image of your failure in your mind? And now you can't even enjoy your victory because your mind is flooded with all of the times you failed. Even though Gideon's faith is weak, God graciously reveals himself to Gideon time after time. And we're going to discover how God essentially holds Gideon's hand through this entire process. He addresses his lack of faith. He addresses his bad theology. Gideon's got some bad theology we're going to see. And his fear. Throughout this story, we see how God gives him small signs and huge victories. Even though Gideon tends to hedge his bets and focus on his own security and safety. Even when he went and tore Baal down, the Bible says he was too afraid to do it in the day, so he went at night. But he did it. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing it anyway, even if you have to do it at night. And God knows exactly where you are in your faith. And he's gracious enough and he's kind enough to meet you there. There's an expectation God has of me that he doesn't have of you because of where my faith is. There's an expectation that God has of you and your response that he doesn't have of me because of where your faith is. And so no matter how afraid you feel today or how small you feel like your faith is today, know this, 
God is there. He's not waiting for you to get somewhere. He's right there. Where you doubt him, where you lack trust, where you got your heart broken and it stayed broken, he's there. So Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you today for this reminder that God doesn't call the courageous, but we are made courageous because of his call. And that his call on my life is irrevocable. The call that he has for me, it wasn't made up in the last 43 years of my existence here on planet earth, but he's known me as long as he's known himself. So there's security in knowing that he knows everything about me. Even what we would consider new information is old information to him. And he's still calling me. So I just want to stand on my feet today. And if you can, I just want to lift my hands. Maybe you can't even stand in the room. It's okay. Lift your heart. Lift your eyes. But take a, take a posture that just says this. It says, God, I'm not brave. I'm not strong. I'm not everything I should be. But because you've called me, I will be. So the Bible says, let the weak say I am strong and let the poor say I am rich. And so whatever you feel God speaking you today, whatever you feel him speaking strength to today, you go ahead and receive that. Doesn't matter what your situation looks like. He's not talking to your current situation. He is speaking to you prophetically about who he has seen, what he knows his foreknowledge of you, his insight, things about you that you don't know about yourself, things about you that your best friends don't know, things about you that your family doesn't understand, but he sees it, he knows it, he formed you in the womb of your mother, the days that are planned for your life, he put them together, he has framed your life in, he knows it all. And so today, God, we just take a posture that says we might not be everything we should be, but thank you that you are calling us still to be who you see us as today. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said amen. Come on, let's just put our hands together and worship a God who sees us as we are, meets us where we are, and refuses to leave us that way. So Father, in Jesus' name we thank you today.